This week, the man who's been at the helm of NAB for the last four years. How does he see Australia tracking in 2024? And will it be the year that work returns to normal? Plus, how big a threat or an opportunity is AI? Fair bit to cover off this week. The Morning Call from NAB with Phil Dobby. Weekend edition. So Ross McEwen is our guest on the uh, the weekend edition this week. Four years at NAB now, six years before that, weathering the British climate as CEO at the Royal Bank of Scotland, other banks before that. But now he is at NAB. He's with us. Welcome, Ross. I bet you miss that Scottish weather, don't you? No, it's great being down this part of the world filled with some sunshine most of the time. Yeah. And, Two uh, degrees and uh, possibly snow this weekend in Edinburgh. Well, no, look, so, I, I did enjoy my time <laughs> up there, but I've got to say... Um, it's it's very nice being down this part of the world. Yeah, for sure. Although, you know, mixed views about how the Australian economy is going to go next year. The big fear, I think, is that whilst most central banks have finished lifting rates, perhaps the RBA hasn't. We don't know that yet. I think the, the NAB forecast is that we expect 1.5% growth next year. That is a slow year. So imagine if you did pile high rates on top of that. So you talk to a lot of people and businesses. I mean, do you sense it's going to be a struggle next year? Look, it certainly is slowing down. Um, and that's been the whole intent of moving interest rates up. Uh, we've still got one in for next year, probably February, uh, 125 basis points movement. I think what we need to do is wait for the next uh, probably four weeks, six weeks, and just see how sort of Black Friday and Christmas trading goes. There is a sense that things are slowing down. And I've been out with customers even today who've said some of the things that they're uh, they're storing on behalf of others are pretty slow moving off the shelves at the moment. So let's wait and see. But I think we're getting the impact of interest rates rising. And with the, the move two weeks ago, I, I think we're probably getting close to the top of the cycle and done enough, but February will tell. Yeah, and retail has been surprisingly resilient, hasn't it? Not just in Australia, but around the world. And, you know, we are getting central banks reminding us this whole thing started as a supply issue rather than a demand issue driven um, bout of inflation. And we look at the monthly uh, business survey out of NAB and capacity utilisation has been moving down, particularly for manufacturing, construction, transport, uh, but finance, retail and recreation not doing so badly. So that sort of points to that, you know, supply side constraint issue. So it is an uneven uh, recovery that we're going to see, isn't it? Look, that's what we're starting to see. We do suspect that uh, retail will slow. It has been slowing off. We've been, I think... Uh, things have been covered over by a very strong um, migration to Australia. You bring in 500,000 people, you know, they all want to live somewhere. They all want food. Uh, they're always uh, going to be using transport or buying a motor vehicle. So that's, I think, kept the economy going as we expected it would. Uh, but the underlying trends are, are pretty sluggish. Yeah, and if you slow that uh, that immigration, then uh, then you the, the problem gets worse, doesn't it, of course? Well, the reality is that we lost about 600-something thousand people out of Australia through COVID as they, they left and went home. So we're not back quite to the levels uh, of, of pre-COVID, but it certainly is helping this economy. And look, I'm still optimistic about the Australian economic outlook. We talked about growth next year being, you know, it'll be under 2%, probably around 1.5 to 1.7%. That's, look, that's not bad when we are slowing an economy down. And the unemployment levels here still 3.7%, big strong immigration. Uh, The things like um, 
Our exports of our mineral resources still going well. So I think there's lots to like about the country. The other thing that's held up very well with uh, the borders well and truly open is students coming back into our university uh, in hundreds of thousands, which is one of the largest uh, economic drivers of Australia now. It's a great export market for us. So there's lots to like, but it is slowing down. And spending happens. We're seeing, you know, customer spending habits are changing. And uh, we do track those behaviours. And they're certainly slowing down in some areas uh, to make sure that they meet their commitments. So uh, that influx of people is obviously adding to, you know, what is the perhaps the Achilles heel in the Australian economy is, the, you know, is, is house prices. They just keep on going up, don't they? I mean, you know, some people would say, well, that's fantastic. But those people trying to get on the housing ladder, less so. In fact, you know, uh, not at all really dampened by COVID. So looking at the core logic numbers, they rose 30% in the capital cities in the two years to April 2022. They did, you know, take a bit of a dip. Obviously, we saw that almost 8% for the rest of 2022. But now they're back to close to that peak. So uh, what is driving that resilience in the in the Australian housing market and and how do we help first time buyers getting onto the onto the ladder you know, I feel like that's a question that's been asked for decades, hasn't it, Ross? Well, look, it is. It's just straight out supply uh, and demand issue here in Australia. Uh, we mm. haven't been building enough houses probably for, you know, maybe a decade. Uh, we, we need a greater number of houses to be built than what's being built today. Uh, so it is supply and demand. We also have a problem uh, in many sectors of the housing market. So, for example, not enough social housing. We don't have enough affordable housing. It's not markets that we've been concentrating on probably for a decade. Uh, we've we've got, unfortunately, in this great country, 120,000 Australians experience homelessness every night. Uh, and I was recently over and up in Calandra, which is on the Sunshine Coast, uh, with our the Salvation Army, who we bank. They had 82 families in motel units. They were homeless. They had 60 single men in units uh, and could probably have another 60 to 120 units. So it's it's a big problem. I know it's a global problem, but we do need to get on and develop more housing and faster. Uh, we're committed to, uh, at NAB uh, into the social and affordable housing, and we'll put aside uh, $6 billion between now and the end of 2029 to assist developers get these properties up and going. So it's a big issue here. Is, so is it just a job for developers, though, or should the government be doing a bit more on this? Well, I think the one thing that we've uh, I've kept stressing is that the if the state governments uh, just made sites available and building approval faster, uh, this would help our developers and our builders get uh, shovels in the ground and uh, get on with development. And, of course, the developers have had a pretty tough time through uh, what has been a very high inflationary period, and many of them were on fixed-price contracts that have hurt them badly. So as we come through that period, I think as we get into 2024, uh, we need to make it easier for our developers just to get on and do what they're great at is develop property sites and build houses or apartment buildings, which is desperately needed here in Australia. But, I mean, space is the problem as well. It seems to 
it's a crazy thing to say, doesn't it? A country the size of Australia. But if you look at the Sydney Basin, I mean, we are running out of room. I mean, you know, particularly, I mean, flooding is clearly an issue. This is, we've been building in areas we probably shouldn't have been. So there's a, isn't there a broader regionalization question here as well about, you know, how we move people out of those capital cities into, into other areas? And that is more than just, you know, making land available. There's obviously all the ancillary services and education and support that needs to go with that. Well, I think one of the first things we need to look at is what are the sites that are close to the facilities that are there, the railway stations, the tram stations, the schools, the hospitals, where are the sites that could be developed that have been sitting idle for some time? There's quite a bit of, bit of it around, even in central parts of Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, and you know, we do, unfortunately, have to go up which a lot of people are objecting to very heavily. But, you know, if you look at Sydney and you get down that Parramatta Road uh, corridor, I mean, you can go six or eight floors up there on good development. And that seems to be a struggle. Uh, and that that's by railway stations, it's by main roads, it's by the hospital, it's by the schools. So we didn't have to keep uh, looking after that infrastructure again, again, again. So I think we've just got to open our minds up. that This is a major problem. We are going to need and work with state governments uh, and the federal government to actually solve this problem. It's solvable for Australia. Yeah. We need to build more homes. So more high-density housing then, is that what you're saying? I mean, interestingly, Paris is one of the most densely populated cities and they have, uh, because almost everybody lives in an apartment, but they seem to have done that quite well, don't they? You know, I mean, no one's going to say Paris is an ugly place to live. Well, it's a beautiful place, certainly to visit. Uh, yeah. and, and we've got cities that are going up. Uh, central parts of Sydney and Melbourne are certainly going up. Uh, we probably need to think about where else could we develop uh, housing sites or apartment building sites that are close to the hubs of, uh, of transport. Otherwise, we've got governments spending more and more on uh, on transportation uh, facilities, the underground railways, the big tunnelling that's been going on in Sydney and same here in Melbourne. Uh, we've got to also find these sites closer to the centre of town, particularly for affordable housing because you could, with Sally Cap, the Mayor of uh, Melbourne, did some work recently. We're finding that those people who work in the city that are essential services, the nurses, uh, the uh, people like our, our um, teachers, our firefighters and the likes, they're having to travel 20 kilometres on public transport to get in and out of their workplace. Well, let's get these the affordable combination close to their centres of work, which are close to the cities. That's the area that I think we also need to lean very heavily into. So the other change since COVID has been the way we work. I mean, more of us working from home. Uh, there was a KPMG report last month that said two-thirds of Australian CEOs say they are expecting employees back full-time in the next three years. Is that how you see it? And is that is that what is holding back productivity? Are we going to see, if we get more people back into the office, are we going to see productivity improve? Look, it's been a hot topic here in Australia. Um, we're running a process here internally where the job can be more flexible. We've, we're, we're putting that flexible into people's work. But our flexibility is around three days in the office working and a couple of days at home, if your job allows for it, because we do see the value of people working together. We're a relationship business. Uh, hard to build relationships when you're on a Zoom sc- screen 
working all day and every day and how can you build a relationship with the colleagues you work with? Uh, we've got uh, a lot of new people coming into the industry every year. They need to be sitting beside people that they can hear the conversations. So, look, I'm, I'm one for flexibility, but I have been pushing uh, for our people to get back into the workplace uh, so that they can develop their careers. Otherwise, I, I fear for particularly uh, newer people's careers in, a, in an organisation like this that is relationship-based. You need to hear what a banker is talking about beside you as you become a new banker. And I've said to our most senior leaders, you're back five days uh, a week into the office to actually help our colleagues with their development. Um, because look, it's, it's horses for courses. There are some jobs that have much more flexibility, but if you're a banker, if you're a, uh, at one of our retail centres, uh, it's just, you know those jobs are five days in the office. They're not two or three days. Well, I love the fact that Zoom is asking their staff to be in at least two days a week. <laughs> so even they are seeing the event. <laughs> uh, so let, let's talk about AI now. Still, that great unknown. It's either going to you know solve the world's problems or uh, it's going to destroy humanity. I mean, there's been a lot written about it, hasn't there? There's possibly a lot written about it by artificial intelligence. But it, it's a minefield. But in banking, I'd imagine one of the big benefits is that ability to continually analyse data and use it for fraud detection. That's going to be easier. But then on the other side, AI perhaps could uh, be looking for weaknesses and trying to find new ways of beating the system. So, I mean, is it creating a new battleground? Well, look, I think it is uh, the new force, uh, particularly in, in, a, in a knowledge economy like banking. And I think uh, jobs will be changed. I'm not saying they'll be uh, destroyed or gotten rid of, but I think they will be changed quite dramatically in an industry like banking, where you can take information and find a solution through generative AI much quicker than you could without it. We've, uh, I took my uh, executive team across to Seattle and spent time with uh, Microsoft, uh, with Amazon Web Services, with Accenture and Bain, just to actually open our own minds up to the possibility, but also the threats. And first off, let's look at the possibilities. We are a data-driven organisation, and if we can make data available faster for our bankers and for our customers to do good things with customers, I'm absolutely open for it. But the thing for us is that data is customers' data, and we need to keep it inside the organisation. And I think any bank that loses control of its data through artificial intelligence or any other source will be in peril. Uh, so where any of the work we do is with our data inside the organization, and it's got to be to help our customers. And we run a, what we call a customer brain that leverages very rich data that can actually do good things for customers. And we have our bankers uh, prodded on things that they should be chatting to their customers about because we're seeing things happen. And that could be scams, frauds, or it could be. They see that they're traveling overseas or they're overseas. What are some of the things that they should probably think about before they head away? Uh, like, have they got themselves uh, good cover from insurance? Have they sorted out their foreign currency? Be it, have they got the right credit card to take away with them so that they can reduce their fees, not charge a lot of fees? So just there are thousands and thousands of things we could use it for, but it's got to be very, very carefully uh, that we are uh, keeping it in a way that's safe for our customers. And we already use, we already do use human controlled AI and cybersecurity, fraud and financial crime, as well as chatbots. So it's, it's, it's something we're using. 
but I think the development is only just starting, really. And um, but could it be used more on the other side? I mean, you mentioned scams. Of course, we are coming to the end of Scam Awareness Week. Uh, I watched uh, a LinkedIn post from now from Laura, who was uh, taking to the streets asking people whether they could spot scams, and and people did pretty well. They were so you know most of us are aware of the issue. But I loved one of the comments in that post said, you know, there's three buttons that scammers try and get us on: panic and fear urgency and authority or love and lust so if you're if you're responding to any of those things uh then they could be getting the better of you and if they're using more ai on their side then even though we all might be a bit savvy to it now perhaps they're going to get more sophisticated and it's going to be a a bigger job to to try and tackle well, you're absolutely right, Phil. This is getting more sophisticated, uh, and therefore we need to use artificial intelligence to actually help our customers um, so that we can see some of these scams and alert and stop things happening. And you're right, uh, there's some pretty horrific things going on. I had a, a shocking case we had recently where there was a 65-year retired gentleman who came into one of our branches and he tried to transfer $1 million to his fiancée, somebody he'd never met. Uh, now, that was one of those romance scams that he'd been worked on for three to six months, uh, believed he was madly in love with this fiancée who he had not met, and our staff had the ability to ask a number of questions to stop the transfer. Uh, and you look, our team had realised it was a scam, but he hadn't. Wow. But, you know, we can, we are using more and more uh, detection devices to actually go through. But, you know, uh, artificial intelligence can take your voice, my voice, and duplicate it within three seconds of listening to it so that our own family would think it was you or me. Uh, So these are things we're going to have to uh, circumvent against as well. And we've got a number of technologies that we're using to, to, you know, fight against uh, what's going on both in the scams and in the cyber world. Well, you know, when I start asking sensible questions, you know, I've been taken over by AI. <laughs> uh, so what about uh, your your personal targets then for 2024? What, what, what nuts are you going to crack, Ross? Uh, two biggies for us. We've talked about one of them, um, Phil, which is around scams. And the other one uh, is around keeping our customers safe from cyber and fraud. I mean, that also is a nightmare for customers. And uh, those are the two big ones because our job is to keep our customers safe. And uh, sometimes that's going to slow things down like payments. But I think uh, keeping people safe has got to be a priority of a bank. And also just being with customers who are having a slower period of time, doing as much as we can to to support them through that period uh, as the Australian economy slows down, which which it needs to, to get our uh, inflation under control. So that's those are priorities for us. good, safe bank, looking after customers. Um, and uh, that's what we'll continue to do as we head into 2024. Good to talk, Ross. We'll catch you next time. Thanks. Thanks, Phil. Cheers. Notice I was on my best behaviour. Always got to behave in front of the boss, haven't you? Uh, now, look, next week, one of the key negotiators in the UK-Australia Free Trade Agreement. We'll talk through the whole process to get there and the outcomes. Was it a win for Australia? And why was it so much easier than trying to get in an agreement with the EU? That's next week on the Weekend Edition. I am back, of course, on Monday morning with our regular weekday edition of The Morning Call as well. For NAB, I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening today. The Weekend Edition. 